Let's turn again in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, where we were this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4, and verses 13 through 18. Reviewing just briefly where we've been this morning. We are speaking of the dead in Christ and his return. And the big idea of this text is that since the risen Jesus will return, grief for departed Christians is overshadowed by resurrection glory. Jesus died, but he rose again. He's alive forevermore and he will return. He will come in power and glory. Because all that's true, when Christians die, we should grieve for them, but not as others grieve who have no hope. We should grieve, our grief for them is overshadowed by resurrection glory to come. Uh, the first point of the text, you recall, from your, and hopefully you have that outline handout again. Uh, the first point of the text was verses 13 through 14, uh, where Paul said that Jesus' death and resurrection secure his people's resurrection at his coming. It's impossible that Jesus would die and rise again, but those in union with him would not. If he died and rose again, his people who die must and will rise again and be with him forever. Uh, He said we should not grieve a Christian's death with the world's despair, verse 13, because departed Christians will certainly join the risen Jesus at his return, verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Paul says, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now we're in the middle of the second point in verses 15 through 18 that Jesus' own word confirms this glorious hope of joining him at his coming. Paul seems to especially be taking his cues from Matthew 24, but also pulling together things from the rest of Scripture and the rest of what Jesus had taught. It's not just Paul's idea, not even something... um, doesn't seem to be saying that this is something the Lord had just recently revealed to Paul. He's going back to what Jesus had taught and said, we have the word of the Lord Jesus on this topic. Christians alive at the Lord's arrival will have no advantage over departed Christians. Verse 15. Those who have died but have died in Christ will miss out on nothing at Christ's coming. Because, verse 16, the very first result of Christ's public arrival will be the resurrection of his people. And what will announce Christ's public arrival, his parousia, that Greek word, is coming, his presence, his royal arrival. What will announce that? Emphasize three loud sounds, noises. First, the shout or the cry of command, the voice of Christ calling the dead to rise. Second, the voice of an archangel, Apparently from the scripture, Michael. And third, the trumpet of God, announcing the day is here. That's where we concluded our morning sermon. And we mentioned that on this last day, according to other scriptures, um, the dead outside of Christ will also rise later in the chain of events that this unleashes. But at the same general event. But only those who are in Christ have the hope of resurrection to eternal life and glory rather than damnation and judgment. Now we're in verse, we're ready for verse 17. 
Yes, uh, verse 17. Um, and here we are going to see that all Christ's people will together be snatched away from this world of death to everlasting life with their Lord. Notice, not just the dead in Christ, all Christ's people, the living and the dead at the time. All Christ's people will, will together, once the dead are raised, together they will all be snatched away from this world of death to everlasting life with their Lord. Verse 17, he just said, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the first response on earth to what is happening, what is coming from heaven. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then, verse 17, Paul writes, then we who are alive, who are left, uh, or the remaining ones, will be caught up together with them, with those who were dead in Christ, who will no longer be dead in any sense. We will be caught up together with them in, in, or you could translate that perhaps, caught up by means of clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Jeff Wyma in his commentary describes what's being said this way. He says, Yet the dead in Christ will not rise immediately into the presence of the returning Christ in the air, but to the earth, from where they, along with living believers, will then be taken up to welcome the Lord in the air. Verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, together with them will be snatched. That seems to be the idea. The dead in Christ rise from their graves, and then in the next moment, they with us rise together to meet the Lord in the air. The important part is that all Christ's people from all ages, whether they were dead or alive and Christ came, they will all have equal share in the same event. An equal place will rise together. He uses the word, we will be caught up together with them. Caught up. Comes from the word harpazo. Again, Jeff Wyma. Paul's choice of harpazo was intended not to teach a secret rapture of the church, but rather to make a word play. Since this term was often used by non-Christian writers of the day to speak of life or the living, uh, life or the living being snatched away by death. Usually, often in, the, in Paul's day, people would speak of death doing the snatching away. They. This person was snatched away from us in the prime of life. Death did this. This word for being caught up or snatched away seems to be a word place. So Wyma says, Paul, therefore, may be cleverly inverting, turning on its head, a common use of harpazo in referring to death. Rather than the expected picture of death or fate snatching away to Hades those who are living, the living will be snatched up so that they do not face the last enemy, death. Some of us, whoever are left when the Lord are left alive when the Lord comes, some of us will not experience death at all. We will be changed in an instant, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. We'll be snatched from death's grasp forever. Snatched out of the world of death and suffering. Caught up. And often that word for caught up also is used in Scripture, of course, of um, a, a glorious a glorious ascension into heavenly places. And it says, caught up together with them in the clouds, or by means of the clouds. 
Again, why does he go to the trouble to, he's already, he's going to say again, in the air, why does he go to the trouble to paint the picture for us of clouds? Well, first of all, remember we read Matthew 24, where he's often referring to here, uh, the trumpet sounding, the angels, all that's in Matthew 24, so too are clouds. Jesus comes with the clouds as part of his display of power and great glory. Remember the visible tokens of the Lord's presence in the Old Testament. He led and protected his people and dwelt among them in a pillar of cloud and fire. The cloud of glory. He descended on Sinai in a cloud of smoke. God descended on the tabernacle and the temple in a cloud of glory. The glory cloud came down on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus shone with his divine glory. But only a few were there to witness it. And that was a preview, Jesus indicated, of his, of his parousia, of his coming at the time he said that. But Jesus will come in a cloud of glory this time for all the world to see. And just as Jesus was received to heaven in a cloud, so now will his people be. There's this whole pattern throughout scripture. We walk the road our Savior walked, our Savior and our Lord, to whom we are united by faith. If we have suffered with Christ, in fact, if we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And scripture goes to pains to say everything Jesus gets, we get. We are heirs of God together with Christ. Even in the fact that we're taken up in a cloud as he was taken up in a cloud. Acts 1 verse 9, describing Jesus' ascension. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, his disciples... He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's going to come in a cloud the same way he went up in a cloud. just interesting revelation 11 as scripture in in that uh, in that apocalyptic book with all its apocalyptic imagery and visions um revelation 11 pictures the church and its earthly sufferings as two witnesses two prophetic witnesses on earth and then uh when the time for them for their testimony is finished they are they are slain by the beast and by um and they're celebrated over by this wicked world that at last they're gone they stopped speaking their words of judgment against us revelation eleven ten though pictures um i would i would strongly say it, it pictures figuratively the same event for the church Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Very appropriate imagery. That's what will actually happen for us. When Jesus is revealed to all the world in a cloud of glory, then we also will be revealed in a cloud of glory. As Colossians 3, 4 says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, the idea is when he's made manifest for everyone to see in his glory, 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Well, Romans 8 speaks of the day when we are publicly owned by God as his sons and heirs. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our day of adoption in that sense is the day when our bodies are redeemed. Redeemed from sin and death forever. And all creation is waiting for that moment because the day when the sons of God are revealed in their glory is the day creation is set free from the curse. We will have a new creation. That's another topic. We will have new heavens and new earth, a new creation so much better suited for eternal life in resurrected bodies and glorified spirits. We're caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is, of course, what it's all pointing to. The whole point is that we get to be with Jesus. We get to meet the Lord in the air. And as it will go on to say, we will ever be with the Lord, but we'll get there. Now, again, look at the original language. You could say we are... We will be caught up together with them in the clouds for a reception of the Lord in the air. It's in your notes there. Uh, that's a little more literal. A reception of the Lord in the air. And once again, we talked about the, a little bit this morning about the parousia. How that word was often used for this grand event when a, a great official like a Caesar would come to town. And everyone would pull out all the stops to welcome him. Right? And his glory was on display. Very familiar for the sorts of people to whom Paul is writing here. Well, there's a connected term to that sort of event that was often used that here Paul uses with this idea of a reception to meet the Lord. Apentasis. Again, it became sort of a special term in that Greek-speaking world of a formal reception. Let me read the description of what would often happen in such a reception. And this is, sorry, Jeff Wyman. He says, although there was no fixed form to what happened at these formal receptions, they frequently involved the following elements. Once civic leaders became aware that a king or important official was coming to their city, they would adopt a formal resolution to pay tribute to that person by hosting a formal reception in his honor. Prominent citizens, including often priests and priestesses, officers and excuse me, officers and soldiers, leading teachers and their students, and victorious athletes 
were then chosen to be part of the delegation that would meet the visiting dignitary outside the city walls, sometimes a great distance away. Those in the official reception party dressed in their finest clothes, frequently white, and wore laurel wreaths, crowns, on their heads. Those who remained behind also often wore special clothes and garlands and decorated the city in festive colors. The delegation would greet the coming dignitary with shouts of praise and song, and then escort him the rest of the way into their city, where the citizens would similarly welcome him with incessant shouts and applause. Once inside the city walls, the dignitary would offer sacrifices on the local altars and perhaps pronounce judgment on select prisoners, liberating some but sentencing others to execution. <clears throat> and skipping some here, but he, he notes that um, two other places, this prepositional phrase, this word used this way in the New Testament shows up. Two other places, it's similarly suited to this idea of a formal reception. And uh, he, then he notes, and this is really interesting to me, um, a Greek speaker from around AD 400, famous preacher named John Chrysostom, made the same connection. When he read what Paul, the words Paul used for this, here's what John Chrysostom, an ancient Greek-speaking preacher, said. He said, For as when a king ceremoniously entered a city, certain dignitaries and city rulers and many others who were confident toward the sovereign would go out of the city to meet him. But the guilty and the condemned criminals would be guarded within, awaiting the sentence which the king would deliver. In the same way, when the Lord comes, he said, those who are confident toward him will meet him in the midst of the air. But the condemned, who are conscious of having committed many sins, will wait below for their judge. End of quote. So again, what's important is inspired scripture, which God breathed, but it's interesting the exact wording he used for that original audience. What would have come, the pictures that would have come into their head. This royal coming, and then we go out to meet the coming sovereign with such joy and celebration to welcome him. And we're not just going out to meet him once and then go back to our normal lives. Paul says, and so we will always be with the Lord. Jesus isn't going to have a meet and greet with you and say, oh, it's good to see you. Um, come back and see me a thousand years later. We will always be with the Lord. We're his bride. We're his people. John 14, 2 through 3, Jesus said, in my father's house are many rooms. And it's interesting that this, this is probably reflective of a custom, many think so, uh, of the day when a man might build rooms onto his father's house for his bride. Interesting he should word it this way. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus had, will have everything ready for us. In one sense, he prepared everything by going to the cross. That's part of the context in John there. But Jesus also has prepared for us a perfect dwelling place of joy with him forever. And when it's time, he will come to get us, to receive us to himself. In that new Jerusalem, which will come down onto a new earth and a new creation.
Paul says elsewhere that we are betrothed as a pure virgin to Christ. We are already in covenant with our heavenly bridegroom, already his, but we're not with him yet. But one day it will be our wedding day and our union with our Lord and Savior will be complete. And the joy of that union will never fade or end. There'll be no honeymoon period that then drops off. On the contrary, the union will be ever sweeter and ever deeper because we will continue to know Christ better and better in the context of fellowship with him and all his people and the angels, all that heavenly host. So that's why Revelation 19 describes the return of Christ as a wedding day. Revelation 19, 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And we go to Revelation 21, and we see the new Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God's people descending as a bride. Revelation 21, 1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 22, 3-5 No longer will there be anything accursed. Or no longer will there be a curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in that holy city. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Now having said all this, and of course we expanded greatly on what Paul said. But it's all God's word. After Paul said what he said, we get to verse 18. This glorious hope is the best comfort in the face of death. This glorious hope is the best comfort in the face of death. Remember, uh, we, we said in, in the morning service that some of what Paul says here, especially at the beginning and the end of this section, sounds like an ancient letter of consolation. But most ancient letters of consolation were filled with uh, words of comfort that weren't that comforting. (laughs) Somewhat empty. Almost despair sometimes. And yet Paul has just given us a solid hope. A a certainty of joy and glory in the face of, of death for believers. 
And so, whereas he began this section saying, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now he ends in verse 18 saying, before he goes on to say more about the Lord's coming, but from a different angle, he ends this part thinking about the death of, of believers. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. If one of our beloved brothers or sisters in Christ dies, we have the best comfort of all. Don't be content to simply mention good memories of that fellow believer. Though that's a good thing to do, but don't stop there. Don't simply be grief-stricken if they seem to have an unusually early death or unusually sudden or painful death. Or it seems like they suffered a lot before they died. Now, yes, we should remember God's blessings in the past. Yes, we should hate death. It's a tragic curse. It's a vicious enemy. It's an enemy Christ will put down in the end. And we should shed tears. Jesus wept for his friend Lazarus, and he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he wept for him so that the Jews said, look how he loved him. We should weep because death is tragic. It's an evil. And yet, a victory is coming which will swallow up death forever for God's people. That's the best comfort of all. Not just this person's death, this believer's death. Death itself will die. We have God's promise. That's why Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9 say, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. There will be a day when for those in Christ, death is a thing of the past that we can laugh at. It's gone. It's crushed. It's defeated. It's no more. Death one day will only be a thing. It will only be the second death for those outside of Christ. But for God's people, they won't. They'll be forever rid of it. Who do you know that was a believer, but that's passed? We haven't had many, but some who've passed even in the last few years. Uh, Sometimes it's a family member also who's a believer. Sometimes it's just a good church friend. Sometimes someone who had such a wonderful influence on us for Christ, but then they died. How do you think about their future? How do you comfort yourself when you feel their, their loss? Don't just take... Don't just take the world's methods of dealing with death and 
and just use that. You have something so much better. And comfort one another with these words. We each need each other to come alongside and remind each other. Sometimes I will be down in the dumps, and so will you. Sometimes we will be this close to despair. The Apostle Paul was. If a Christian like that can be, so can you. And we need one of the rest of you to come and say, remember God's promise. Not to say, stop grieving, but to say, let's not grieve like those who have no hope. What a glorious God we serve. What a good God that gives us such hope in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, give us courage as we think about, as we remember the death of others who believed in you, and as we will experience more such deaths. And as we one day, if Christ does not return first, one day each of us will face our own death. Give us courage and even joy, joy unspeakable and filled with glory, because we know whom we have believed and we are confident that he will come for us, that where he is, we too shall be. Comfort those who need comfort. Just open the eyes of those who have an unbiblical view of this world and of the life to come. Get our eyes off of ourselves, where we are so prone to be focused on our own temporal troubles and struggles. Get our eyes onto Christ so that we are waiting eagerly for him and so that we will receive the crown of righteousness which you will give to all those who love Christ's appearing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.